Hey everybody, and welcome to Open Door Philosophy, purveyor of the Protestant work ethic. I'm your host, Taylor Jones, and with us, as always, is the transcendent Mr. Parsons. Uh, hello everyone. Not with us today, however, is Andrew Graziano, who is on assignment in the jungles of Africa, like charting the migratory patterns of wildebeests or something. Welcome to episode 57, where we'll explore the transcendentalist notion of the cultivation of the soul. Well, that sounds so serious after, you know, we said the migratory patterns of wildebeests. So serious. Yeah. Uh, actually, congratulations to Andrew. He's not here because he's doing his official graduation from Rice this weekend. And that's huge. That's awesome. Yeah. Great for him. Very, very exciting. And then he'll be, gone the, the, he'll be gone the next episode. We feel very sorry for him. He'll be in Spain and Italy. He's going to Spain? Oh, did you not know that? <laughs> no. I knew he was traveling, yeah. but he didn't. I didn't say or hear him say he's going abroad. Spain and Italy. What a hard life. Oh. Uh, actually, I have no idea what the reason is that he's going, but I'm sure that'd be really amazing. Anyway, hey, no Andrew the next couple episodes, so nope. uh, it's just Taylor and I. Yeah, just us. When Andrew's away, the Protestants come out to play, so <laughs> here we go. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, Taylor, how's it going in your world? It's good. Um, so busy. This next week is going to be really busy. We're recording this probably a while, so I'll be out when everybody hears this, but I'm about to go into my last week of class and then finals. So it's kind of the biggest week of the year and I have a bunch of big assignments to do. So I'm just kind of trying to mentally prepare for the craziness of the next week and a half. But other than that, really good. Excited to be out for summer. What about you, Mr. Parsons? Yeah, it's going to be nuts for you. We'll send up Protestant prayers for you, but not Catholic ones because they don't count. (laughs) Oh no, you know, everything's really great for me. Last episode, I I said, as of recording time, I'd just seen Taylor Swift. Well, this episode, I'm saying, as of recording time, I just spent the day at Six Flags with a bunch of my students, and we had a, a really crazy wild time. So I rode some rides that were intense, and we had a great time. <laughs> they were so nice. intense. Uh, it was really fun. You know, when I was going there, I'm like, I'm not riding any of those crazy roller coasters. And when I got there, they're like, you want to ride roller coasters? I'm like, yes, let's go. So <laughs> I rode a lot of roller coasters. And uh, Are you not a roller yeah, coaster ahead. person? Oh, uh, well, I, I am. Uh, but the last time I rode a roller coaster, this is no joke, was uh, 17 years ago. What? And so, you know. What? Yeah, it was. So, I mean, I hate to do the whole as the body ages business. You're but not that I didn't old. Know. <laughs> Taylor, I don't know if it's scrambling my brain or not. You know, like one of these, one of these uh, little loops or something. I'd lose consciousness, consciousness because of the G forces or something. But that's all about it, man. Like we rode all the crazy rides. It was so much fun. We had a great time. It was a really great time. Uh, And I guess the other thing I'll say is that the oppressive summer of Houston is almost upon us. Uh, The humidity that never seems to end will soon be here. But April, man, April's been beautiful. Golly, yeah. cool, rainy, temperate, highs in the 70s, just gorgeous. So I don't know what the next month holds for us, but I've really enjoyed this last month. Yeah, we've had really nice weather here in Waco, too. A little bit of storms, but like for the most part, it's been so nice. Today, however, I think we broke into the 80s. So Yeah, well, the highs next week and the latter part of the week are in the low 90s. So anyway, it is here. But hey, you know, we may get one or two of those those beautiful May days where, for yeah. whatever reason, a front blows through and the humidity blows out and mm-hmm. it's 70 degrees and the sun's out and, yeah. Hopefully. Anyway. I'm really hoping because I'll be home, so. Yeah, you will. So crazy. That's awesome. So I wanted to ask your opinion on something, just kind of get your thoughts on this. A uh, little, little current event sort of business, and maybe it's, well, it is philosophical. But anyway, last week, Snapchat released an AI for their platform. And I want to read the official release from them. They say, today we're launching my AI, a new chatbot running the latest version of OpenAI's GPT, 
which if anyone doesn't know, it stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. Sounds very technical. Technology that we've customized for Snapchat. My AI is available as an experimental feature for Snapchat Plus subscribers rolling out this week. And then I wondered if I was a Snapchat Plus subscriber, because that sounds more than Snapchat. Mm -hmm. Turns out pretty much anyone has a Snapchat account as a Snapchat Plus subscriber. Yeah, they. I thought it was just for like the Snapchat Plus, but then everyone has it. So I everyone has didn't it, understand. Yeah. And you have to get Snapchat Plus to get rid of it, is what I've been hearing. <laughs> So they just well, I activated mine. It uh, it came with the usual disclaimers like, "Hey, this AI has no idea what it's doing. It may say crazy things or whatever." But it also gave recommendations like help with birthday gifts or plan a hike or quote even write a haiku about cheese for your cheddar obsessed pal. End quote. I don't know that's terribly helpful in my life. Thank God AI is here. But anyway, I don't know. I was just curious. What do you think about that? I think it's kind of creepy. I have not met a single person that actually likes it, but I have not updated my Snapchat to the current update, so I don't have this AI, and I am grateful because it just seems like a weird little thing, and you can't get rid of it, and it just, I don't know, it's so strange that it just is there now, and it's almost like trying to replace Siri or Google or Alexa or whatever with a Mm. Snapchat version, but we already have all of those. So I don't yeah, right? like what is it doing that Siri can't already do for you or Alexa can't already do for you? That's a great question. You know, in this whole, I mean, I'm sure you've noticed the uh, AI is just like the buzzword right now. Yeah. Um, all the tech companies are all over it and everyone's just doing stuff with AI. It's everywhere. I, I do wonder, you know, from a, well, I guess epistemologically speaking, what do we think AI really means? Like, what does the tech industry mean when they say AI? Mm-hmm. What does the media mean when they say AI? And like, what do people like you and me, what do we think AI is when someone says like, oh, now you have a snap AI? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't think most people think of actual AI or think of AI as what it actually is, like the automated intelligence that can actually learn and start generating its own information, we just kind of resort to, oh, it's just Siri. Because that's Mm -hmm. all we have to go off of in terms of any sort of digital intelligence. Mm. Yeah. Where do you think this is all going? Like, is anyone talking about it in your classes? or No. Where where do you think this whole AI business is going? I don't know. That's kind of scary. Because I feel like it could very easily get out of hand Mm -hmm. if people take it too far. But if some like practical ways like this, I don't really see the point of it. I get it if it's things like programming or I don't know. I'm not a programmer, so I don't know what the uses could be there. But I feel like professionally it could be helpful, but I don't see the real benefit of it for regular people in everyday life. Yeah, I just wonder what the point is of like adding it to to Snapchat. Like, I don't know. I, I've used... Yeah, I've used ChatGPT for, on, I mean, I'll be totally honest, I've used it for some research mm-hmm. um, for it, for even some episodes, but I've used it for research on, uh, for some topics for class. I've used it for explanations of things that I was reading in Kierkegaard's mm-hmm. The Sickness Unto Death. Some of those chapters were hard to, mm-hmm. to comprehend. Like, uh, it's, it's a really interesting tool to use. And I don't know, like, it's, the, I don't, I don't know how much you know about the tech industry, but man, they are dumping billions all of them meta Mm -hmm. twitter microsoft apple they're just dumping billions of dollars into this ai arms race that's happening now Mm -hmm. and i don't know it's just fascinating to see where it's going to go i don't know that ai like the purpose of ai i mean if it's to help me write a haiku about cheese for my cheddar obsessed pal i don't know that we're really utilizing the tool Mm -hmm. of ai right you know but i don't know i don't know well, I just thought it was funny that it popped up last week on mm-hmm. something as as uh, widely used as Snapchat, as yeah. opposed to you, know, you have to go to some website for ChatGPT or something like that. Right, yeah. My guy's yeah. green. I haven't changed him. Mm-hmm. My AI guy. I haven't really asked him any important questions. Some people have been asking it about Taylor Swift, and it doesn't really <laughs> know anything about Taylor Swift, just her most popular songs. And it tells them it's not a Swifty. Oh, what a nerd. It. <laughs> <laughs> we did, uh, when we were bored, uh, standing in line for rides yesterday, mm-hmm. 
uh, we did ask the Snapchat AI how to explain certain philosophical topics with just emojis. Hmm. So that was kind of fun. We asked it to explain Hegel's dialectical. (laughs) And uh, I don't know. Then we asked it to explain uh, the Tao Te Ching and gave us lots of images of nature and then like a a yin-yang symbol. So I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. I have a feeling whatever Snapchat is using AI for, it is by no means what these tech companies are developing AI for. No, I couldn't imagine. Like, Like the uses of it. I have heard AI being used for something really useful for like uh, like the uh, medical industry. Mm-hmm. How you know you can ask it questions, maybe even to eventually diagnose, which is kind of creepy. That is creepy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but that's one of the that's one of the things people have been concerned about with like ChatGPT is people are asking like, oh hey, my blood pressure is this, and my heart is is thumping hard. What does that mean? And now you're asking, you know, is ChatGPT whether or not you should go to the ER or something and. So there's some real implications there mm-hmm. about responsibility. Yeah, and like how far human qualities go in discerning medical things. Because I feel like a lot of medicine needs humanity and you need a person to be interpreting things. And you can't just plug things into a machine because so many conditions and disorders and diseases have the same symptoms. So you have to be able to know how to look for other things that I don't know that AI could do. I guess if it's really advanced, it could, but... Yeah, you know, you think about medicine and it's sort of deductive nature. You know, you mm-hmm. go to the doctor and something's wrong with you and they start asking you questions and, and based on that information, you arrive at a conclusion. I mean, you might think like, well, okay, just some, some really powerful AI might be able to do that. But yeah, you know, there seems to be like there would be something to the human touch. yeah. I can't quite put a finger on, but I mean, the implications are huge. Uh, it should be really fascinating. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think the Snap AI or ChatGPT or any of the other things, I think the Google one is called Bard, which of course I like because <laughs> it's a Shakespeare illusion. But <laughs> but uh, I don't think these things, you know, five years from now are even going to look like, like what they are right now. Yeah. It's kind of like whatever came before MySpace. Is, a, is what ChatGPT is right now, you know, as far as development yeah. and technology. So, yeah, be interesting to see how it, how it progresses. Yeah, that will be interesting to see. Well, guys, before we get into the show, I do want to um, <laughs> <laughs> offer a, a little embarrassing correction. Uh, in our previous episode, we were talking about Kierkegaard and relating the, well, as Andrew, Taylor, and I were together with the power of our three brains <laughs> patchworking together the story of Lazarus. Mm-hmm. We said that uh, Mary was Lazarus's wife, and that is very wrong. Mary is Lazarus's sister. Uh, so, <laughs> so Mary and Martha. Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha. Uh, Mary, of course, was Jesus Christ's uh, mother. So anyway, basically, Jesus showed up to uh, to raise Uncle Lazarus from the dead. So what a good family in time. Not Mary's husband. <laughs> Was that Mary, the same Mary of Jesus's mother? Because I know there's two. There's his mother and there's oh, a different no, Mary. No, don't, 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 don't bring me down that road. I, I don't know. I didn't look it up. Mary. I don't think it's Mary Magdalene. All right, I'm going to Google it. Hang on. I should ask ChatGPT. <laughs> Wait, Snapchat. I thought it was the other Mary. Because she's the same one. I think that they go to the temple or to the the tomb and they see that Jesus is not there. I think I thought that was the same Mary that does both those things. Oh no! <sighs> According to Baylor University, actually, his first search <laughs> result. It's <laughs> kind of interesting. Subsequently, the legend of Mary Magdalene, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Well, there you go. Sycamores. Sycamores, as a beautiful, vain, and lustful woman, saved from a life of sin by her devotion to Jesus, became a dominant in Western Catholic Christianity. Although the Eastern Orthodox Church continues to regard Mary Magdalene and Mary Bethany. Oh, that's where it stops. I gotta click on the link. Oh, it's a whole article. Anyway. Okay, well, not Mary the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene. We had a sister named Martha. We had a brother named Lazarus. So not Uncle Lazarus for Jesus. Somebody's uncle, I'm sure. Somebody's uncle. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. <goodness. laughs> Oh boy, corrections upon corrections. Hey, let's get to the show. Yeah. (laughs) All right, everybody. We're going to do an episode today on specifically on topics related to philosophy of 
life, and the philosophy of life we're looking at today is transcendentalism. So we had an episode on transcendentalism our first year. It remains actually one of our most popular episodes. Hmm. I want to say part of that is due to the fact that students study transcendentalism in high school and college, and maybe when they do Google searches, that shows up. Yeah. But anyway, we'll take it. So there's a book by a guy named uh, Barry M. Andrews in 2017, wrote a book called Transcendentalism and the Cultivation of the Soul. So we're going to talk a little bit about transcendentalism as like a philosophical school, but this episode will largely focus on that big philosophical question, how do you live a good life? And that's what they mean by cultivation of the soul, which is very uh, transcendentalist language. But before we get going, Taylor, what do you think? What do you think achieving the good life really entails? And for you, or just philosophically, it's it's a term we throw around a lot in philosophy, but you know what? What's wrapped up in that for you? We're starting with easy questions today. Yeah, yeah, yeah no problem. <laughs> mm, I think the biggest thing for me, at least right now, is like community is very important to living a good life and finding a strong mm connection with other people and within yourself so a combination of knowing yourself and knowing others and finding joy and peace in your life is kind of a good life and it can be simple or ornate but it doesn't have to be anything super fancy what about you mr parsons well i want to hit you with one more question and then we'll get to me so for me uh also peace you know or tranquility of mind Mm -hmm. or something like that is is part of that what do we really mean by that? And, and I'm happy to expand on the question as well. But when we say, oh, I want to live a peaceful life. Like, does that mean like just complete disconnection from things going on around you? Is that, that what I mean by peace or no, being I w- at peace with things or? I think at peace with things. I think if you have complete disconnection, I don't know that you could be at peace. If you're mm. just completely isolated in the world, I don't. To me, that wouldn't be peaceful. I'd feel lonely and very alone. I think, man, that's a good question. Just a lack of inner turmoil and understanding that things are going to work out one way or another and everything will just work itself out in its own time is a big part of peace in my Mm -hmm. understanding. Yeah, uh, I like that. I like that. You know, for the first time this year in class, I really kind of wrestled with that, like, you know, in, in Stoicism or in Eastern philosophies like Taoism, it's the idea of like being tranquil, right? Being at peace. And sort of like, well, what exactly does that mean? Mm-hmm. Does that mean because a lot of Eastern philosophies will advocate for non-attachment? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, if you advocate for non-attachment, does that mean you're just not involved with things? You don't care about things? Uh, you could go with a very stereotypical view of Stoicism, say Stoics. Are the way they are, they achieve peace and harmony because, you know, they're a rock w- in the ocean that waves crash upon and they never mm-hmm. move. You know, are they just uh, unfazed by things? You know, what, what exactly does peace mean? I do like the idea of just being at peace with what comes your way, the good and the bad. But anyway, I guess for me to answer your question, of course, peace, a type of harmony. Mm-hmm. I try to be yeah. harmonious with all things. You could you know, relate balance or maybe moderation or something like that in with that idea. I try to be even killed. Mm -hmm. I try not to, like very platonic or Aristotelian, I don't really want my emotions to, or rather, I don't want my negative emotions to rule me. I'd like to try to keep those under control. So those types of things, gosh, I don't know what else. I try to, well, I do look to the Greek virtues as good virtues to live by. And so I do, from time to time, ask myself, Has I have I treated this person justly? Mm-hmm. Am I acting in moderate, are my actions moderate? So, so I do think of, of some of those from time to time as well. well. That brings me to my next question. So these sound like, you know, fantastic goals and a great way to live our lives. But how do we instill that in our lives? So whether it's religion, whether it's philosophy, all these encompass practices. And I think it wasn't too long ago we talked about practices in our philosophy of religion Mm -hmm. episodes. We talked about practices with, um, well, they came up with uh, Kierkegaard in the previous episode as well. So 
are there any practices that, that you do in your own life that helps cultivate uh, a good life? Hmm. I think this is probably where I could be better. This is definitely an area of improvement for me. Just because being in college, you get so swept up in assignments and homework and, oh, I have to do this and that and trying to maintain all the relationships when you don't see people all the time. And that just gets hard. So you kind of get just all caught up in everything. But I think some important things to me are trying to make sure I'm reading often outside of academic work just because it just gets dry. And as much as I love (laughs) reading philosophy and reading about politics and theories and international studies, you can only read so much academic content and do so much work before your brain just kind of starts to burn out on you and then you can't be living a good life if you're burnt out. So just finding ways that I can do things just for myself, so like reading or hanging out with my friends and doing things that aren't studying or homework is really important and trying to get off of the college campus and going somewhere else, even if it's just to a coffee shop. And like finding joy in little moments, I think is a big thing too. That's great. A lot of that echoes some transcendentalist practices actually. Yeah, getting out, getting away. Community is very important. Yeah, I think that's great. How do you think that you can achieve your goals of living a good life? Well, you know, I don't know how it is for people who listen to our podcast. I, I hope people don't listen to us and think like, oh, these people have it figured out. <laughs> I do not have it figured out, you know? They don't. No, no. Uh, I try. I try. Some of the things I do is, is I journal a lot. Mm-hmm. I journal an awful lot. Uh, I could do it more. You know, the Stoics are like, journal in the morning or journal in the evening mm-hmm. before you go to bed. Reflect on your day or reflect on the day that's coming. I by no means do that every day. I do it maybe once, once or twice a week. And then I just try to be reflective. Uh, I try to treat people, you know, if, I, if I've done something that I don't feel great about, mm-hmm. I mean, I want to like stop not feeling great about it, but at the same time, I need to use that and, you know, I need to ask myself like, you know, do I need to apologize to this person or things like that, that I think kind of a lot of what that really gets to is this notion of balance. This is mm-hmm. exactly what you talked about really earlier when you're talking about diving so deeply into your academic studies. Uh, you've got to balance that out from yeah. time to time with some leisure activity and having time with friends and uh, and going and doing things. I don't walk as much as I would like to. I'd, I'd like to get out of the house a little more, mm-hmm. um, but I don't. I get up awfully early and I sometimes get home uh, yeah. later than I'd like, you know. So I'm kind of in that grind too. But yeah, I guess my the most the clearest practice I suppose that I have would be journaling, and and we'll get to that in this particular episode. Emerson mm-hmm. was a big advocate for that as well. Taylor, we're going to talk a lot about the cultivation of the soul. Sounds so so high and mighty uh, about transcendentalists, but we did it. Like I said, we did an episode on transcendentalism uh, two years ago, but let's do a a quick little review. Uh, What exactly is transcendentalism? Transcendentalism first was a reaction to the Enlightenment and the rise of scientific rationalism in America. And one thing I find really interesting is it's the first time we're really seeing a distinctly American school of philosophy or train of philosophical thought. And they're kind of pushing against all of the like hyper-rationality that's brought on by the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution. And you're really seeing that in Europe and Great Britain where things are really rational and then you get this really drastic shift where Emerson and Thoreau and all of these people are focusing or refocusing back on nature and the human soul and the way that the soul experiences life and what should the soul do. They basically emphasize reconnecting with nature and being one with nature and it's a big reclamation of spiritual and moral purpose in life so they're rejecting dogma and getting too caught up in this and that and being connected to something specifically and evaluating traditions emphasizing direct experience 
So the individual is really, really important here, which I think is cool. Yeah, it's such a uniquely American. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I, I'd like to, you know, <laughs> say it's such a uniquely American thing. So just to cross over at the previous episode, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was kind of the the first, one of these the first. There were others who were writing at his time. Collectively, they were transcendentalists, but he comes before the generation before Henry David Thoreau, but. Emerson was writing the same time that Kierkegaard was writing, who we covered in the previous episode. And you think about the emphasis that Kierkegaard had on individual experience, subjective experience, all of that. And here we're kind of reading the same thing in the United States with uh, with Emerson and the Transcendentalists. I find that fascinating. Yeah, but the approach is so different because Kierkegaard is hyper-rational and he reasons through everything. But then you see Emerson take the such a free-flowing approach to nature and just mm-hmm. experiencing nature and walking and recording observations. That's so interesting. It is interesting, wow. isn't it? Yeah, Emerson's writing is just so, um, oh gosh, it's just so elevated. And mm-hmm. when I mean elevated, I don't mean like necessarily academically, but in terms of its content and how it's written. Yeah. He was trying to he was trying to explain the transcendent through using using human language, mm-hmm. which he admitted is impossible. But uh, it's so lofty, you know. You're just floating the clouds with uh, with Emerson. It's great. Yeah. So anyway, uniquely American, whether or not it is whether it is or not, you know, we'll leave it up to the experts. But <laughs> it really began around 1830. So as far as uh, American history goes, we're 50 years past the establishment of the United States, and like you said, Taylor, a lot of that generation that came from the American Revolution were still very European in many ways and had mm-hmm. European thoughts. And a lot of the religions we had in the United States were what we refer to these days as, as old world religions. They, they came from Europe. And a lot of them were, were still largely British in many ways, even though, you know, we had yeah. established this new country. So when the Transcendentalists come along, especially with, uh, with Ralph Walter Emerson, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says something like, why should we grope around the dry bones of the past? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a new day before us. There's new flax in the field. There's new traditions. Uh, we should be able to establish our own. And so it's really an attempt to separate themselves from European thought and establish something that is uniquely American. And it's, it was widely successful. It's a very New England movement, but... Mm-hmm it ends up influencing a lot of American thought and literature. Even the other great American tradition, which is probably philosophical tradition, which is probably better grappled with with philosophers globally, would be that of pragmatism, which William James was Mm -hmm. kind of of the first pragmatist. His dad knew Emerson and Henry David Thoreau. So there's some heritage here that kind of links all those together. And even the uh, the neo-pragmatist Richard Rorty, who was very active in the latter 20th century, uh, often referenced uh, transcendentalism. So, yeah, it, it's thought permeates a lot of American history and thought. Mm-hmm. But you're absolutely right. It was a pushback, right? It was a pushback yeah. not only against this uh, you know, prejudice towards European thought and how their philosophy is better and how their literature is better. It's not only a pushback against that, but also that notion of the Enlightenment and the whole scientific rationalism. Yeah, because that's not too long after you get Hobbes and then you get Locke and Rousseau mm. in England and Europe, and you see that like all of these treatises on the rights of the individual and protecting rights and where do rights come from. And then within half a century, maybe, you have such a different shift because those ideas permeated in America, too, in the Constitution with Madison and Jefferson. And they took a lot oh, from yeah. that. But to see the United States shift so drastically is really interesting. Yeah, it's like if it's going to evolve into something that's its its own thing and not really break its ties with Europe, mm-hmm. but become something different than Europe. Yeah, I mean, it had to happen. And so the Transcendentalists were really instrumental in, in that happening. Yeah. I actually have that quote written down in my notes about why should we grope among the dry bones of the past? The sun shines today also. And the part Mm. about the sun shining reminds me of the shining city on a hill example. Mm. That's a nice quote. Yeah. America should be the shining example 
of God's graces and what it's like to be a good nation and a just nation. And I think that really gets to the heart of how it's so American that today is a new opportunity and it's not just an opportunity, it's a gift and that we need to take it that way. Yeah, it really does kind of embody that American optimism Mm -hmm. that I suppose many associate with the United States. Yeah. Yeah, especially during that time period, you know, Western expansion was going on mm-hmm. at the detriment of uh, many Native uh, Americans. But yeah. it seemed like uh, the world was just open before everyone. And mm-hmm. yeah, they're just casting off the, the shackles in, of, of Europe yeah. and European thought. Uh, but again, a lot of that, you know, mentioned the sun shines and you mentioned nature. Of course, Emerson's probably most famous essay. Yeah. There's a, a very long essay just titled Nature. And so... I don't know. What do you have to say about transcendentalist connection with nature? We'll talk a lot about these spiritual practices, mm-hmm. or rather cultivation of the soul, these practices. But I don't know. What, when you think of nature and transcendentalism, what do you think about? I don't think you can separate transcendentalism from nature. I don't know if that's just so connected in my mind because we read nature in class and then went on a hike. But I think that so much of it is seeing the beauty of nature and the peace in nature and reflecting on that and just like being a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Direct experience of nature. So one of the things the transcendentalists were caught up in is just they felt society. And I mean, this is so funny. I'd love to I'd love to see a transcendentalist in 2023. (laughs) Yeah. Like, oh, society is just so, you know, rational and Mm -hmm. distracting from everything. We need to go walk in nature. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't fathom what they think today. But yeah, society, especially for Henry David Thoreau, society really represented this. Well, evil is an awfully big word, but it's something that keeps us from our true natures. And of course, this Mm -hmm. was kind of embedded in the early industrial revolution. And so some people were becoming disconnected from the land. They were farmers and maybe now they're working in cities, uh, in early factories and things like that. And to be in nature, nature is uh, nature is something that gets us away from all that and clears our heads and clears our minds. Mm-hmm. So for them, nature was very important to be in. But also when we're talking about emphasis of direct experience, nature and we'll get into religion here in a minute, but nature really supplants scripture mm-hmm. for the transcendentalists. It becomes, yeah. and like no one ever outright says it, but they're really panentheistic, which means they believe God was in nature and nature is in God and we are a part of nature. And so we share a bit of God in that they didn't envision this gulf between humanity and God yeah. and that nature being in nature was and that direct experience, that individualistic experience was something that would reveal truth more than these uh, dry bones, if you will, of church dogma that's been argued over for centuries. Mm-hmm. Like, go out and find God because he's out there. Yeah. Well, we brought up religion, so I guess we'll get we'll dive into it. I don't want to get too deeply into it, but Emerson was a Unitarian. It was a very, uh, very popular denomination among. I mean, gosh, was Emerson elite? I feel like he was an elite in a way. Anyway, it's associated yeah. with North Northeastern. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he went to Harvard. Uh, Harvard is Harvard back then. It's not what Harvard is today, you know. But <laughs> but anyway, he was very involved in the Unitarian Church, and the Unitarian Church, you know, if you. You know, if you follow it from sort of its Protestant origins from 150 years ago, it it evolved from Protestantism. You have this Unitarian church that, frankly, was just very rationalistic and uh, lots of dogma. If you you talk, if you say, use that same quote that we talked about earlier, the sun shines also Mm -hmm. today. The transcendentalists wanted to reject these traditional forms of religious authority and dogma because that whole individual spiritual experience and intuition what's just really reminds me of Kierkegaard a lot uh you know that's yeah I was just thinking that yeah yeah so that's so interesting isn't it because you would think that Kierkegaard and Emerson or Thoreau couldn't be more different Mm -hmm. but they really have the same core idea Mm -hmm. that the church that there's something fundamentally wrong with how strict and dogmatic organized religion had become in that this individual soul was losing something. Yeah. Wow. It's really cool, I huh? just had, never would have thought, yeah. You should bring that up to your Kierkegaard professor. 
<laughs> oh, the class is over. I'm so sad. I'll email him. You'll email him. <laughs> you know, I was just thinking the other day. He'd be, <laughs> he'd be so happy. Yeah, yeah. That's great. I'm sure he would. Here's a quote from Andrews <laughs> who wrote this book. He says, God can be viewed as a force of power imminent in nature, including human nature, and not as a supernatural being entirely separate from it. At the same time, nature took the place of the Bible as a source of revelation. The transcendentalists believed all of creation was a manifestation of the divine. And when we say that, that's what I mean by panentheism, which, uh, yeah, a manifestation mm -hmm. of the divine. I think that reverence kind of gets to the core of where in the Bible it talks about how God made everything in his image. So if you're looking for God in the divine in everything around you, you're going to see it. Yeah, so that reminds me of a quote from the Bhagavad Gita. So it says, just as a reservoir is of little use when the whole countryside is flooded, scriptures are of little use to the illuminated man or woman who sees the Lord everywhere. Huh, that's so interesting. That sounds like something that could almost come out of Proverbs or one of the more mystic books of the Bible. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. Yeah, a lot of religions have this, have this uh, branch where, you know, if you want to know God, go out and find him because he's everywhere. Yeah. You know, instead of some distant, distant deity mm -hmm. that's beyond this gulf. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. All right. I feel like I've blown your mind tonight. <laughs> My mind has been blown. I feel like it's been opened. That's good. That's good. <laughs> so a really weird term here I think about that's transcendentalists used and when they're talking about the cultivation of the soul. So they called it self-culture, which is the art of life. We have lots of words where we use self these days, like self-help, self-care, but self-culture just doesn't really roll off the tongue. But it's the term that they used, and really that's what they meant by cultivating the soul. It's you're cultivating your own culture. And so there are a number of goods that they pointed towards that help with self-culture, and that's creative work, meaningful relationships, and peace of mind, those are super broad in general, but it's really what they pointed towards. And so Emerson said that self-culture is the preparation of the soul for when God makes himself known to us or to prepare the mind for the encounter for the transcendent. So this was not something just necessarily to improve yourself or something. But when we're talking about self-revelation, opening yourself to the universe, to God and all this sort of stuff, all this sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> uh, Self-culture is preparing yourself for the moment, right? Preparing yourself for the moment when you encounter yeah. God and uh, or encounter the transcendent. But how do we practice self-culture? So Emerson had some suggestions. I'd be curious your thoughts on them, Taylor. Uh, for, so there's, there's four that he really points out. And by the way, when Emerson, when I say like Emerson or Thoreau or transcendentalist had these ideas, they never wrote a work that they're like, this is how you do self-culture. All of this is just gathered from their many writings and seeing the consistent things that they focus on. And so here's four. I'm curious what you think about this to cultivate self-culture. So first of all, you need to have a place that's yours. You have a place to yourself. Mm -hmm. Second, uh, you need to keep a journal. Now, what that journal looks like, you know, no one really says, uh, but... Emerson said, you need to keep a journal, quote, for the habit of rendering an account to yourself, end quote. And then contemplation in solitude and mindfulness, and then taking walks in nature. So that's his four suggestions of how we can kind of get on the road of practicing self-culture. What are your thoughts on those? I think those are great. I mean, it seems like a lot of it is pointing to knowing yourself and connecting back with yourself, which I think is really important today, especially because we are so connected. And just with our phones and everything, we can talk to pretty much anyone at the top of the button. And we just get really sucked into that. Mm -hmm. And we forget to check in with ourselves because we're so busy checking in with everybody else. So I think it's good to be able to have a place that's entirely your own where you can think just your own thoughts and kind of take a step back from the world and everything that's going on and just really meditate on 
your life and your thoughts and all that sort of thing. And keeping a journal is great. I think I would benefit from journaling more. It's just not something that I think about. But that's probably the whole reason that most of us should be journaling is because we're not thinking about what's going on. And it can really help. Like when I do write out my thoughts, it helps me to articulate exactly how I'm feeling and kind of work through the feelings that seem very complicated in the moment and realize, oh, okay, this really is not as big of a mountain as I thought it was. Mm. And it's just a matter of decompressing from everything that's going on. Yeah, I think journaling so good and so hard. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, time, yeah. the time you should journal is exactly the time you don't feel like journaling. Right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I love his quote, for the habit of rendering an account to yourself. It's like you said, we get swept in, in our minds. Like we enter these thought vortexes and we can't escape them. And it becomes so difficult for us to really have a clear understanding of what's going on because the thoughts in our head just keeps keep swirling around. And rendering an account to ourselves is just so great in terms of being able to write what you're actually thinking and revisit that thing. Like as you write it, it becomes manifest in the world. You know, it's not just Mm -hmm. that thought swirling in your brain anymore. I don't know. I just think that's really helpful. And I suppose to like cultivate those kind of thoughts, things like walking in nature, contemplation in solitude. I mean, maybe sometimes if you're in a really bad thought spiral, you shouldn't be in solitude. I have a quote from nature Mm -hmm. that reminds me a lot of a quote from Meditations okay. that I found, mm-hmm. for the most part. Meditations so by quote, Aurelius, Marcus Aurelius. Yeah. Yes. So to go back to nature, I was looking at my notes and I found one quote that we had talked about this in class, actually, that we all really liked. And it reminded me of a quote that I brought up a couple weeks ago when we were talking about Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Mm-hmm. So the Emerson quote is... But if a man would be alone, let him look at the stars and about finding company and companionship in nature. Mm. And then the Aurelius quote from Meditations is, watch the stars in their courses and imagine yourself running alongside them. Think constantly on the changes of the elements into each other. For such thoughts wash away the dust of earthly life. And I think that's really kind of profound to think about how in moments of uncertainty or loneliness that not only should we look at the stars, but we also have an inclination to, that we feel very drawn to look up at the stars for whatever reason. And we feel like they're kind of guiding us in a way or giving us, showing us a view of something that's bigger than ourselves. And we have a lot of hope in that, Mm -hmm. which I really like. Yeah, I love that. That's such a good quote or a combination of quotes. I think, you know, in, in, in our Western tradition, we largely view nature as something separate from ourselves or separate from humanity. Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. And I won't go into them right now. But uh, to remember that that as we're walking in nature and as we're looking at the stars, that we are a part of that, too. You know, you can yeah. view us, you can view it as something separate from ourselves. But I think that we are organic creatures just as any other organic creature. And we are Mm -hmm. a part of all that as well. And the Stoics saw themselves as like they saw nature as being a part of a community. When, when you're out walking, you know, in the woods and looking at the stars, Mm -hmm. you're among family. That's, that's like, you know, really, I don't know, I'm playing to emotions there, but, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you belong to a community and not just a human community. You belong to, uh, the community of the universe and that can get super mm-hmm. abstract and you know all that kind of stuff but yeah I think that's kind of what the transcendentalists were hinting yeah. at you know yeah I think that can be really good to remember when we get so caught up in daily life and what's going on here and now and what our current problems are and mm-hmm. what exams you have coming up and what projects you have due is that this is only such a small part of our life experience and the experience of the universe as a whole and that everything is so much bigger Mm -hmm. even though some things feel really huge to us right now that getting too caught up in only seeing what's right now it makes you lose sight of everything else that's going on around you and your connection to everything else that's living around you yeah yeah in a way i can see it as being actually comforting 
uh, that you're not really this mm-hmm. alienated yeah. person, but that, uh, but that not only do you have community with other people, which of course is always a very important thing to remember because you do, uh, but that also you have community with everything that's around you. It's all a part. It's, yeah. it's all a part of one. Now I've made a, a philosophical claim. Okay. <laughs> that's great. I love those quotes. Thank you. Let's look at some. This is what happens when Andrew's not here. I know. We could all wishy-washy without him. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> that's great. Uh, Andrew, we, we need Andrew to, to bring us back down. Yeah. You know, we're off. Our rationalist skeptic. I know. We're floating around here in the world of forms. I know. Well, okay. So let me run through some of these real quick. Prerequisites for a spiritual life. So these are some of the things that transcendentalists thought that is very important for you to have as a part of your life if you're going to, you know, attempt a spiritual self-culture life. So one is nature, and we've really touched on this a whole lot already. But mm-hmm. but again, it's it's nature was the ultimate source of religious revelation replacing scripture it's not like you're just walking through nature because you're like oh it's nice outside you're walking through nature because it connects you to something greater than yourself like you said and again the transcendentalist saw society like just largely as this negative view of rationalism and industrial revolution and all that sort of stuff and so yeah with going any deeper into it yeah uh, the emphasis on nature there uh, the next is leisure and i'm going to ask you a question here in a second we'll see what you come up with but leisure. Now, this so leisure. Leisure is an interesting concept in the United States and probably other places in the world. We have a very driven sort of work ethic in the United States. We work more than a lot of countries. People have less vacation than a lot of countries. We just work, 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 and that comes a lot from this mm-hmm. whole Protestant work ethic uh, that goes way back. Yeah. But leisure for the transcendentalists is not to be like lazy or frivolous or anything like that, but it's an activity that's done for its own sake or for its own end. And all those things contribute to like basically your 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 mental well being. Because if you don't feed that part, like if you don't have leisure, you gotta just become spiritually undernourished. Yeah. So Taylor, what do you do for leisure? My leisure time is not leisurely enough. A lot of times I just end up scrolling on TikTok, which is so bad. That's not letting my brain rest. Um, hmm. I don't know. A lot of times my friends and I, we just end up kind of sitting around and talking mm-hmm. about things and kind of just anything and everything. And it's nice to have time to just chat mm-hmm. and not have to be talking about school or an assignment or a class discussion and just chatter a little bit and have kind of not empty conversation, but conversation about things that aren't existentially important. Mm-hmm. And I like to make time to read, but kind of at this point in the semester, it's... <laughs> no leisurely, leisurely reading at yeah, this point. Yeah, there's not much leisure reading because it's either read or sleep, so yeah. kind of got to make that choice. Yeah. And I wish I had more time for leisure, which I guess really means I wish I would make more time mm. for leisure, so I need to make it a habit. Mm-hmm. This podcast today is really making me think about my life. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness well that's what that's what good philosophy should do yeah what do you like to do for leisure uh you know if i'm being if i'm using leisurely properly uh i'm doing things like going for walks uh we have a nice neighborhood mm-hmm. to walk in i try to do that a couple times a week uh do some things like gardening journaling in a way is, is leisure for me this yeah. sounds kind of funny but you know i like i like writing commentaries on like Marcus Aurelius and Tao Te Ching and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, I also do other leisure things like, well, and read. I, I, I read for fun. Believe it or not, mm-hmm. I read for fun. So much. I you read so much. I also much. read, uh, you know, like philosophy stuff, which is also fun. It's just a different type of fun. Um, <laughs> but I also do things like, you know, I play video games and we'll watch, you know, we'll watch TV, you know, Young Sheldon or, mm-hmm. or Ted Lasso or something. And, you know, just, just being on the couch with the cats and the dogs and Kirsten yeah. is, is good leisure. Good leisure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the other one is, uh, is self-reliance. And again, with the whole American, like, we can do it on our own. Uh, or rather, yeah. I can do it on my own. Uh, this isn't like some sort of rugged individualism business. Uh, this is, self-reliance is the ability to trust yourself and your own instincts 
rather than, once again, I'm sure you're seeing the theme, rather than relying on external sources of authority or conforming to social norms. Again, can't help but think of Kierkegaard in that regard. But, uh, yeah. yeah, so it's not horribly narcissistic or individualistic or something like that. Ultimately, if, if you if you practice self-culture and take care of yourself and better yourself through self-culture, you'll better other people. And that's really the point, and honestly, the point of most morality. You know, earlier, Taylor, you said one of your leisure um, activities was to just talk with people, hang out with people. And mm-hmm. the great Roman Stoic Seneca would agree with you. Uh, some of his points for leisure was taking outdoor walks and stimulating conversation. Mm-hmm. And the Emerson household, I mean, it was a constant just rotating of, of people visiting, yeah. coming by, and dinners and after dinner and just, yeah, it's good medicine. Yeah, people are important for the soul. They are. The right people. The right people. Seneca would also say, make sure mm-hmm. you surround yourself with yeah. the right people. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that really makes all the difference because it's no, either it like very uplifting and fulfilling and fills your cup or it's very draining and you need to like go somewhere else to get that fulfillment that you need from connection. Absolutely. Seneca, one of Seneca I mean, I, I paraphrased it earlier, but the Seneca quote is surround mm-hmm. yourself with people who are likely to improve you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 You don't need the drama. I think we forget that. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's such a, it's like the easiest advice. It's like the most simple advice, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Look at us. We're just breaking barriers here tonight. I know. Okay. So other spiritual practices, there are many of them. So we're going to go through these somewhat quickly. Off mic, Taylor and I were like, oh, this should be like a two or three episode series. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So one of one of the spiritual practices is solitude, and we've talked about that again, or rather, we talked about that earlier. Johann George Zimmermann was a 19th century Swiss philosopher and author of of a book called Solitude, um, and it's one of the few books that Henry David Thoreau actually owned, um, and probably very much so influenced him. But he called the affairs of the world the perpetual drunkness of life. We got to get away from that. And his quote is that your society is the school of wisdom and solitude, the temple of virtue. In the one, we learn the art of living with comfort among our fellow creatures and in the other of living with quietude by ourselves. That doesn't mean that solitude, though, necessarily has to be, you know, out in nature or something. Uh, You can find solitude in all kinds of places. Emerson was very famous for uh, his study at home was just his place of solitude. Uh, of course, Henry David Thoreau is very famous for his Walden experiment. But mm-hmm. I also think this is kind of corny. I also think of Superman. He uh, he had a place <laughs> way up oh. north somewhere where it was cold, you know, where his uh, his culture was preserved. And he would go there from time to time. Mm-hmm. And it was called his Fortress of Solitude. Yeah. So we also have a quote from Henry David Thoreau on solitude. And he says, this is a delicious evening when the whole body is one sense. It imbibes delight through every pore. I go and come with a strange liberty in nature, a part of herself. As I walk along the stony shore of the pond in my shirt sleeves, though it is cool as well as cloudy and windy, and I see nothing special to attract me, all the elements are unusually congenial to me. The bullfrog's trump to usher in the night, and the note of the whippoorwill is borne on the rippling wind from over the water. Sympathy with the fluttering alder and poplar leaves almost takes away my breath. Yet, like the lake, my serenity is rippled but not ruffled. These small waves raised by the evening wind are as remote from the storm as the smooth reflecting surface. And here's what I love about the transcendentalists. Thoreau's great. Emerson's more my favorite, but uh, but they're both absolutely wonderful. They're just, their writing's inspiring to me. Mm-hmm. I feel the passion in it. I'm like, that's something that I want to go out and grab for myself as well. And I think sometimes we forget that with mm-hmm. philosophy is like, you know, we need to be inspired by it as well. And, you yeah. know, dry treatises are great and everything. And they're important, you know, like that's a very important mm-hmm. part of philosophy. Sometimes we also need to be energized and inspired. And mm-hmm. when I read Emerson and Thoreau, I'm just like, man, th- there's more to this life that I'm doing right now. And I can get better at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a beautiful passage. Yeah. Yeah, and just seeing the beauty in something that's an otherwise average day and just recognizing that there is something so profound 
and uniquely beautiful about the way that things are right here, right now. And it doesn't need to be anything extravagant or extraordinary to be beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The next one I have is contemplation. And of course, when you're in solitude, it really allows yourself to uh, contemplate about things. So contemplation, not necessarily like as far as like, you know, a mental prayer, but more in the classical sense of, again, that direct experience trying to discern truth or reality from your perception. So here's a, a lovely quote talking about more inspiration from Ralph Waldo Emerson. The simple habit of sitting alone occasionally to explore what facts of moment lie in the memory may have the effect in some more favored hour to open to the student the kingdom of spiritual nature. He may become aware that all around him roll new at this moment and inexhaustible the waters of life, that the world he has lived in so heedless, so gross, so is illuminated with meaning, that every fact is magical, every atom alive, and he is the heir of it all. Mm. You're the heir of it all, wow. Taylor. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I don't know how to even elaborate on that because that, yeah, <laughs> speechless. Yeah. So the next one is sauntering, which is a funny word. It's not a word we really use today. Uh, but saunter, mm -hmm. uh, Henry David Thoreau specifically wrote about sauntering in his essay, Walking. And it's mm -hmm. a type of walking. <laughs> so this is a transcendentalist <laughs> for you. We're going to break down types of walking. Uh, but sauntering is, is very different from walking. It's, it, uh, it's more purposeless. You're just, you, you, I mean, you might have a destination. You might not have a destination. Thoreau was ridiculous. He said in, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing from walking, but he says like, <laughs> uh, oh, I just can't make it through the day if I don't walk at least four hours a day. And I'm like, hey, HDT, uh, we don't have time to walk four hours in daily life. <laughs> Isn't isn't he the same person that said there's no problem in life you can't walk away from if you just walk long enough? Oh, you know, you're going to love this. Uh, that's actually Kierkegaard. <laughs> no. Oh. Those connections just keep happening. That's really crazy. Yeah, yeah. Did they know each other? Or no? I don't know. I don't think so. Isolated? Like, they were so contemporaries, and I don't know that there would have been a lot of Danish translated into English for people in America to pick up. Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson write a lot about what they're reading contemporarily. It's mostly American stuff. And yeah, so I, I don't know the exact answer hmm. to that question, but I've read a biography on Emerson. It, it doesn't strike anything in my mind. Huh. But yeah. That's so perplexing. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's this next one. This is also this, you know, I love that in the 1840s or whatever, they were worried about living simply. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, if we, if we lived in 1840, we'd be like, oh my gosh, this is beyond simple. This is barbaric. Right. But living simply was a big part of uh, this spiritual practice, self-culture self as well. So plain living and high thinking. And again, not an arrogant way, not, a, not an egotistical academic way as far as high thinking but like you hear this lofty language these transcendentalists are using it's like to focus on those things so they mm -hmm. did see however they did see wealth as a hindrance uh, and not necessarily an aid to self-culture which is a little ironic because yeah. emerson well they weren't wealthy i wouldn't say they're wealthy i know a lot of his uh, some of his later tour circuits uh, that he would do lecture circuits were to help pay the bills like part of it was to help pay the bills mm -hmm. Anyway, yeah, this is not a new problem. Still a problem today. We face the challenge that the transcendentalists face, right? Which is to live simply, yeah. live graciously, uh, without excess dependency of money. You can tie in the virtue of moderation with all of that. You think we you think we can make it out of all that? This twenty 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 three. What does it mean to live simply in twenty twenty three? I don't even know. Is that possible? I guess you'd have to define what simply means. Hmm. We could sure unplug from a lot of things more. You could. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think about unplugging from things like social media and like Snapchat because in TikTok and Instagram, just because they're so annoying. Mm -hmm. And it's just like always there's something to look at. But then I think about how many people I would lose contact yeah. with if I deleted Snapchat alone, yeah. which is hard because how can you get rid of all these distractions 
if at the same time that's losing connections because that's the way that it's easiest to at least see what's going on in somebody's life, even if you're not always talking to them. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, it's yeah, a great point. I know I have former students on Facebook from particular groups and then when students aged out of Facebook, when that became not cool anymore, uh, you know, my, mm-hmm. my students were on Instagram, so then I know students from Instagram, and then Snapchat was cool, and yeah. now I have former students on Snapchat. It's like I have three generations of technology, <laughs> uh, three generations of yeah. social media that I have former students on, and yeah, if I stop be- being there, accessing those from time to time, I lose my contacts, my families, all mm-hmm. over Facebook, of course. Yeah. I don't want to see most of what they say. <laughs> Well, yeah, there's those family members that are a little too active. <laughs> oh my gosh. Let's move on. <laughs> so there's a couple others and, and we just won't, we don't have time to get into them, guys. I'm so sorry. Uh, three other ones yeah. I want to point out is reading. Reading is important. The Stoics say it as well. Mm-hmm. Like, guys, you got to read. You got to engage with the stuff. We've echoed that in other uh, podcasts as well. So Transcendentalists are all about it as well. Conversation. We've talked about that a lot tonight, being connected with people and having conversation with people. And the last one is, again, we've touched on it, is journal writing. So all of these combined, reading, conversation, journal writing, simple living, sauntering, contemplation, and solitude. All of these are important as as spiritual practices to increase self-culture, as they called it. We can call it maybe Mm -hmm. mindfulness or becoming just more present in the moment or these types of things. But nonetheless, there you go. Let's do a quick little practical takeaway. So before we before we end this, so Taylor, any practical takeaways from all this exciting transcendentalism? I hate to say the same thing I always do, but in every single one of these takeaways, I think I just need to actually take the takeaway away one of these times. <laughs> but just to be more mindful of what's going on and practice mindfulness. So reading and journaling and really unplugging from distractions like social media and being on my phone so that I can actually plug in to the people around me and really take that time and not take it for granted Mm -hmm. because just being at the end of the semester and knowing that my friends live halfway across the country from me so I won't see them until we come back in Mm mid-August has really kind of put that into my head of like oh wow we don't have as much time as we think we do. Yeah. We don't have all the time in the world. And we really have to be careful about how we're spending it. And I wish I would have been more cognizant of that. Just because you get so caught up in everything going on that it's so easy to lose sight of that and to to miss the trees for the forest, mm-hmm. I guess, mm-hmm. is kind of the that direction that it would go. But yeah, just to be more present is my takeaway. What's your takeaway? You know, I know you're sort of being critical of yourself for saying, uh, be present in the moment. Uh, That's always your takeaway. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think every day, you know, I should open my journal before I start the day and just write to be present. Mm -hmm. And if I reminded myself that of that every single day, I I still am probably not reminding myself enough. Mm -hmm. And so, because it's just, I mean, like you said, there's just so much that pulls us away from that. Yeah. I think the other thing with transcendentalism, my takeaway here is, is just be careful how you spend your time. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. the transcendentalists have a, a particular way that, that they think that we should spend our time. And I think some of those practices are very good. But the broad sort of takeaway for me is just be careful how you spend your time and, and, and be aware that you are spending your time in a particular way. Yeah. You know? Yeah, those are my takeaways. Okay, everybody. Well, thanks so much for tuning in. We had a great time talking about some of our faves, at least mine and Taylor's faves, Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and the Transcendentalists. We really appreciate you tuning in. We would love to hear from you on all of our social medias at Open Door Philosophy or at our email at contact at opendoorphilosophy.com. And if you would head over to our YouTube, Andrew is also posting our catalog of episodes and trying to get our new episodes up on YouTube, if that's how you would prefer to listen to our podcast. But yeah, we would love to hear from you with feedback or any ideas or things that you would love to hear us talk about. We're everywhere. Mm-hmm. And we'd love to thank a good old Kevin McLeod.
Dylan, as Andrew always says, is groovy music, and it is very groovy. It's fun music, so um, he's actually really in a lot of places on the internet if you look for him. Uh, he's, uh, he has a lot of music credits in all kinds of places. So anyway, thanks to Kevin McClough for the free use of his music. And, well, hey, that's it, Taylor. It's on to finals. Yes, that's it. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, remember, when the, uh, whenever your life is in need of some philosophy, the door is always open. Of the Protestant, pro- <laughs> <laughs> let me try that again. It's nice alliteration. Of the Protestant work ethic. No, you have to do it all okay. again. You have to do it all again. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you don't have to do the hi everybody, welcome to Open Door Philosophy. Purveyor of the Protestant work. Okay, work ethic. I. Okay. Did you do like uh, like like uh, exercise when you're in choir to like get ready to to sing? <laughs> <laughs> Gotta do the lip trills. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha